Chapter 10, Horrid Red Things. We can call the attempt to refute theism by displaying the continuity of the belief in God with primitive delusion the method of anthropological intimidation. Edwin Bevan, Symbolism and Relief. I have argued that there is no security against miracle to be found by the study of nature. She is not the whole of reality, but only a part. For all we know, she might be a small part. If that which is outside her wishes to invade her, she has, so far as we can see, no defenses. But of course, many who disbelieve in miracles would admit all this. Their objection comes from the other side. They think that the supernatural world would not invade. They accuse those who say that it has done so of having a childish and unworthy notion of the supernatural. They therefore reject all forms of supernaturalism which assert such interferences and invasions, and especially the form called Christianity. For in it, the miracles, or at least some miracles, are more closely bound up with the fabric of the whole belief than in any other. All the essentials of Hinduism would, I think, remain unimpaired if you subtracted the miraculous. And the same is almost true of Mohammedanism. But you cannot do that with Christianity. It is precisely the story of a great miracle. A naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. The difficulties of the unbeliever do not begin with questions about this or that particular miracle. They begin much further back. When a man who has had only the ordinary modern education looks into any authoritative statement of Christian doctrine, he finds himself face to face with what seems to him a wholly savage or primitive picture of the universe. He finds that God is supposed to have a son, just as if God were a mythological deity like Jupiter or Odin. He finds that this son is supposed to have come down from heaven, just as if God had a palace in the sky from which he had sent down his son like a parachutist. He finds that this sun then descended into hell, into some land of the dead under the surface of a presumably flat earth, and thence ascended again as if by a balloon into his father's sky palace, where he finally sat down in a decorated chair placed a little to his father's right. Everything seems to presuppose a conception of reality which the increase of our knowledge has been steadily refuting for the last two thousand years, and which no honest man in his senses could return to today. It is this impression which explains the contempt and even disgust felt by many people for the writings of modern Christians. When once a man is convinced that Christianity, in general, implies a local heaven, a flat earth, and a God who can have children, he naturally listens with impatience to our solutions of particular difficulties and our defenses against particular objections. The more ingenious we are in such solutions and defenses, the more perverse we seem to him. Of course, he says, once the doctrines are there, clever people can invent clever arguments to defend them, just as when once a historian has made a blunder, he can go on inventing more and more elaborate theories to make it appear that it was not a blunder. But the real point is that none of these elaborate theories would have been thought of if he had read his documents correctly in the first instance. In the same way, is it not clear that Christian theology would never have come into existence at all if the writers of the New Testament had had the slightest knowledge of what the real universe is actually like? Thus, at any rate, I used to think myself. The very man who taught me to think, a hard satirical atheist, ex-Presbyterian, who doted on the golden bough and filled his house with the products of the Rationalist Press Association, thought in the same way. And he was a man as honest as the daylight, to whom I here willingly acknowledge an immense debt. His attitude to Christianity was for me the starting point of adult thinking. You may say it is bred in my bones. And yet, since those days, I have come to regard that attitude as a total misunderstanding. Remembering as I do from within the attitude of the impatient skeptic, I realize very well how he is forearmed against anything I may say for the rest of the chapter. I know exactly what this man is going to do, he murmurs. 
He is going to start explaining all these mythological statements away. It is the invariable practice of these Christians. On any matter whereon science has not yet spoken, and on which they cannot be checked, they will tell you some preposterous fairy tale. And then, the moment science makes a new advance and shows, as it invariably does, their statement to be untrue, they suddenly turn round and explain that they didn't mean what they said, that they were using a poetic metaphor or constructing an allegory, and that all they really intended was some harmless moral platitude. We are sick of this theological thimble-rigging. Now, I have a great deal of sympathy with that sickness, and I freely admit that modernist Christianity has constantly played just the game of which the impatient skeptic accuses it. But I also think there is a kind of explaining which is not explaining away. In one sense, I am going to do just what the skeptic thinks I am going to do. That is, I am going to distinguish what I regard as the core, or real meaning, of the doctrines from that in their expression which I regard as inessential and possibly even capable of being changed without damage. But then, what will drop away from the real meaning under my treatment will precisely not be the miraculous. It is the core itself, the core scraped as clean of inessentials as we can scrape it, which remains for me entirely miraculous, supernatural, nay, if you will, primitive and even magical. In order to explain this, I must now touch on a subject which has an importance quite apart from our present purpose, and of which everyone who wishes to think clearly should make himself master as soon as he possibly can. And he ought to begin by reading Mr. Owen Barfield's Poetic Diction and Mr. Edwin Bevan's Symbolism and Belief. But for the present argument, it will be enough to leave the deeper problems on one side and proceed in a popular and unambitious manner. When I think about London, I usually see a mental picture of Euston Station, but when I think, as I do, that London has several million inhabitants, I do not mean that there are several million images of people contained in my image of Euston Station, nor do I mean that several millions of real people live in the real Euston Station. In fact, though I have the image while I am thinking about London, what I think or say is not about that image, and would be manifest nonsense if it were. It makes sense because it is not about my own mental pictures, but about the real London, outside my imagination, of which no one can have an adequate mental picture at all. Or again, when we say that the sun is 90-odd million miles away, we understand perfectly clearly what we mean by this number. We can divide and multiply it by other numbers, and we can work out how long it would take to travel that distance at any given speed. But this clear thinking is accompanied by imagining, which is ludicrously false to what we know that the reality must be. To think, then, is one thing, and to imagine is another. What we think or say can be, and usually is, quite different from what we imagine or picture. And what we mean may be true when the mental images that accompany it are entirely false. It is indeed doubtful whether anyone except an extreme visualist who is also a trained artist ever has mental images which are particularly like the things he is thinking about. In these examples, the mental image is not only unlike the reality, but is known to be unlike it, at least after a moment's reflection. I know that London is not merely Euston Station. Let us now go on to a slightly different predicament. I once heard a lady tell her young daughter that you would die if you ate too many tablets of aspirin. But why? asked the child. It isn't poisonous. How do you know it isn't poisonous? said the mother. Because, said the child, when you crush an aspirin tablet, you don't find horrid red things inside it. Clearly, when this child thought of poison, she had a mental picture of horrid red things, just as I have a picture of Euston when I think of London. The difference is that, whereas I know my image to be very unlike the real London, the child thought that poison was really red. To that extent, she was mistaken. But this does not mean that everything she thought or said about poison was necessarily nonsensical. She knew perfectly well that a poison was something which killed you or made you ill if you swallowed it, and she knew to some extent which of the substances in her mother's house were poisonous. If a visitor to the house had been warned by the child, 
don't drink that, mother says it is poison, he would have been ill-advised to neglect the warning on the ground that this child has a primitive idea of poison as hoarded red things, which my adult scientific knowledge has long since refuted. We can now add to our previous statement, that thinking may be sound where the images that accompany it are false, the further statement, thinking may be sound in certain respects where it is accompanied not only by false images, but by false images mistaken for true ones. There is still a third situation to be dealt with. In our two previous examples, we have been concerned with thought and imagination, but not with language. I had to picture Euston Station, but I did not need to mention it. The child thought that poison was horrid red things, but she could talk about poison without saying so. But very often, when we are talking about something which is not perceptible by the five senses, we use words which, in one of their meanings, refer to things or actions that are. When a man says that he grasps an argument, he is using a verb, grasp, which literally means to take something in the hands but he is certainly not thinking that his mind has hands or that an argument can be seized like a gun. To avoid the word grasp, he may change the form of expression and say, I see your point, but he does not mean that a pointed object has appeared in his visual field. He may have a third shot and say, I follow you, but he does not mean that he is walking behind you along a road. Everyone is familiar with this linguistic phenomenon, and the grammarians call it metaphor but it is a serious mistake to think that metaphor is an optional thing which poets and orators may put into their work as a decoration and plain speakers can do without. The truth is that, if we are going to talk at all about things which are not perceived by the senses, we are forced to use language metaphorically. Books on psychology or economics or politics are as continuously metaphorical as books of poetry or devotion. There is no other way of talking, as every philologist is aware. Those who wish can satisfy themselves on the point by reading the books I have already mentioned, and the other books to which those two will lead them on. It is a study for a lifetime, and I must here content myself with the mere statement. All speech about supersensibles is, and must be, metaphorical in the highest degree. We now have three guiding principles before us. 1. That thought is distinct from the imagination which accompanies it. 2. That thought may be in the main sound, even when the false images that accompany it are mistaken by the thinker for true ones. 3. That anyone who talks about things that cannot be seen or touched or heard or the like must inevitably talk as if they could be seen or touched or heard. For example, must talk of complexes and repressions as if desires could really be tied up in bundles or shoved back. Of growth and development as if institutions could really grow like trees or unfold like flowers. Of energy being released as if it were an animal let out of a cage. Let us now apply this to the savage or primitive articles of the Christian creed. And let us admit at once that many Christians, though by no means all, when they make these assertions, do have in mind just those crude mental pictures which so horrify the skeptic. When they say that Christ came down from heaven, they do have a vague image of something shooting or floating downwards out of the sky. When they say that Christ is the Son of the Father, they may have a picture of two human forms, the one looking rather older than the other. But we now know that the mere presence of these mental pictures does not, of itself, tell us anything about the reasonableness or absurdity of the thoughts they accompany. If absurd images meant absurd thought, then we should all be thinking nonsense all the time. And the Christians themselves make it clear that the images are not to be identified with the thing believed. They may picture the Father as a human form, but they also maintain that he has no body. They may picture him older than the Son, but they also maintain the one did not exist before the other, both having existed from all eternity. I am speaking, of course, about Christian adults. Christianity is not to be judged from the fancies of children any more than medicine from the ideas of the little girl who believed in horrid red things. 
At this stage, I must turn aside to deal with a rather simple-minded illusion. When we point out that what the Christians mean is not to be identified with their mental pictures, some people say, in that case, would it not be better to get rid of the mental pictures and of the language which suggests them altogether? But this is impossible. The people who recommend it have not noticed that when they try to get rid of man-like, or as they are called, anthropomorphic images, they merely succeed in substituting images of some other kind. I don't believe in a personal God, says one, but I do believe in a great spiritual force. What he has not noticed is that the word force has led in all sorts of images about winds and tides and electricity and gravitation. I don't believe in a personal God, says another, but I do believe we are all part of one great being which moves and works through us all, not noticing that he has merely exchanged the image of a fatherly and royal-looking man for the image of some widely extended gas or fluid. A girl I knew was brought up by higher-thinking parents to regard God as a perfect substance. In later life, she realized that this had actually led her to think of him as something like a vast tapioca pudding. To make matters worse, she disliked tapioca. We may feel ourselves quite safe from this degree of absurdity, but we are mistaken. If a man watches his own mind, I believe he will find that what profess to be specially advanced or philosophic conceptions of God are, in his thinking, always accompanied by vague images which, if inspected, would turn out to be even more absurd than the manlike images aroused by Christian theology. For man, after all, is the highest of the things we meet in sensuous experience. He has at least conquered the globe, honored, though not followed, virtue, achieved knowledge, made poetry, music, and art. If God exists at all, it is not unreasonable to suppose that we are less unlike him than anything else we know. No doubt we are unspeakably different from him, to that extent all manlike images are false. But those images of shapeless mists and irrational forces which, unacknowledged, haunt the mind when we think we are rising to the conception of impersonal and absolute being, must be very much more so. For images of the one kind or of the other will come. We cannot jump off our own shadow. As far then as the adult Christian of modern times is concerned, the absurdity of the images does not imply absurdity in the doctrines. But it may be asked whether the early Christian was in the same position. Perhaps he mistook the images for true ones, and really believed in the sky palace or the decorated chair. But as we have seen from the example of the horrid red things, even this would not necessarily invalidate everything that he thought on these subjects. The child in our example might know many truths about poison, and even, in some particular cases, truths which a given adult might not know. We can suppose a Galilean peasant who thought that Christ had literally and physically sat down at the right hand of the Father. If such a man had then gone to Alexandria and had a philosophical education, he would have discovered that the Father had no right hand and did not sit on a throne. Is it conceivable that he would regard this as making any difference to what he had really intended and valued in the doctrine during the days of his naivety? For unless we suppose him to have been not only a peasant but a fool, two very different things, physical details about a supposed celestial throne room would not have been what he cared about. What mattered must have been the belief that a person whom he had known as a man in Palestine had, as a person, survived death and was now operating as the supreme agent of the supernatural being who governed and maintained the whole field of reality. And that belief would survive substantially unchanged after the falsity of the earlier images had been recognized. Even if it could be shown then that the early Christians accepted their imagery literally, this would not mean that we are justified in relegating their doctrines as a whole to the lumber room. Whether they actually did is another matter. The difficulty here is that they were not writing as philosophers to satisfy speculative curiosity about the nature of God and of the universe. They believed in God. And once a man does that, philosophical definiteness can never be the first necessity. A drowning man does not analyze the rope that has flung him, nor an impassioned lover consider the chemistry of his mistress's complexion. 
Hence, the sort of question we are now considering is never raised by the New Testament writers. When once it is raised, Christianity decides quite clearly that the naive images are false. The sect in the Egyptian desert which thought that God was like a man is condemned. The desert monk who felt he had lost something by its correction is recognized as muddle-headed. All three persons of the Trinity are declared incomprehensible. God is pronounced inexpressible, unthinkable, invisible to all created beings. The second person is not only bodiless, but so unlike man that if self-revelation had been his sole purpose, he would not have chosen to be incarnate in human form. We do not find similar statements in the New Testament, because the issue has not yet been made explicit. But we do find statements which make it certain how that issue will be decided when once it becomes explicit. The title Son may sound primitive or naive, but already in the New Testament this Son is identified with the discourse or reason or word which was eternally with God and yet also was God. He is the all-pervasive principle of concretion or cohesion whereby the universe holds together. All things, and especially life, arose within him, and within him all things will reach their conclusion, the final statement of what they have been trying to express. It is, of course, always possible to imagine an earlier stratum of Christianity from which such ideas were absent, just as it is always possible to say that anything you dislike in Shakespeare was put in by an adapter, and that the original play was free from it. But what have such assumptions to do with serious inquiry? And here the fabrication of them is specially perverse, since even if we go back beyond Christianity into Judaism itself, we shall not find the unambiguous anthropomorphism or man-likeness we are looking for. Neither, I admit, shall we find its denial. We shall find, on the one hand, God pictured as living above in the high and holy place. We shall find, on the other, Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? We shall find that, in Ezekiel's vision, God appeared, notice the hesitating words, in the likeness as the appearance of a man. But we shall also find the warning, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on that day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make a graven image. Most baffling of all to a modern literalist, the God who seems to live locally in the sky also made it. The reason why the modern literalist is puzzled is that he is trying to get out of the old writers something which is not there. Starting from a clear modern distinction between material and immaterial, he tries to find out on which side of that distinction the ancient Hebrew conception fell. He forgets that the distinction itself has been made clear only by later thought. We are often told that primitive man could not conceive pure spirit, but then neither could he conceive mere matter. A throne and a local habitation are attributed to God only at that stage when it is still impossible to regard the throne or palace even of an earthly king as merely physical objects. In earthly thrones and palaces, it was the spiritual significance, as we should say the atmosphere, that mattered to the ancient mind. As soon as the contrast of spiritual and material was before their minds, they knew God to be spiritual, and realized that their religion had implied this all along. But at an earlier stage, that contrast was not there. To regard that earlier stage as unspiritual because we find there no clear assertion of unembodied spirit is a real misunderstanding. You might just as well call it spiritual because it contained no clear consciousness of mere matter. Mr. Barfield has shown, as regards the history of language, that words did not start by referring merely to physical objects and then get extended by metaphor to refer to emotions, mental states, and the like. On the contrary, what we now call the literal and metaphorical meanings have both been disengaged by analysis from an ancient unity of meaning which was neither or both. In the same way, it is quite erroneous to think that man started with a material god, or heaven, and gradually spiritualized them. He could not have started with something material, for the material, as we understand it, comes to be realized only by contrast to the immaterial, and the two sides of the contrast grow at the same speed. He started with something which was neither and both. 
As long as we are trying to read back into that ancient unity, either the one or the other of the two opposites which have since been analyzed out of it, we shall misread all early literature and ignore many states of consciousness which we ourselves still from time to time experience. The point is crucial not only for the present discussion, but for any sound literary criticism or philosophy. The Christian doctrines, and even the Jewish doctrines which preceded them, have always been statements about spiritual reality, not specimens of primitive physical science. Whatever is positive in the conception of the spiritual has always been contained in them. It is only its negative aspect, immateriality, which has had to wait for recognition until abstract thought was fully developed. The material imagery has never been taken literally by anyone who had reached the stage when he could understand what taking it literally meant. And now we come to the difference between explaining and explaining away. It shows itself in two ways. 1. Some people, when they say that a thing is meant metaphorically, conclude from this that it is hardly meant at all. They rightly think that Christ spoke metaphorically when he told us to carry the cross. They wrongly conclude that carrying the cross means nothing more than leading a respectable life and subscribing moderately to charities. They reasonably think that hell fire is a metaphor and unwisely conclude that it means nothing more serious than remorse. They say that the story of the fall in Genesis is not literal, and then go on to say, I have heard them myself, that it was really a fall upwards, which is like saying that because my heart is broken, contains a metaphor, it therefore means I feel very cheerful. This mode of interpretation I regard, frankly, as nonsense. For me, the Christian doctrines which are metaphorical, or which have become metaphorical with the increase of abstract thought, mean something which is just as supernatural or shocking after we have removed the ancient imagery as it was before. They mean that in addition to the physical or psychophysical universe known to the sciences, there exists an uncreated and unconditioned reality which causes the universe to be, that this reality has a positive structure or constitution which is usefully, though doubtless not completely, described in the doctrine of the Trinity, and that this reality, at a definite point in time, entered the universe we know by becoming one of its own creatures and there produced effects on the historical level which the normal workings of the natural universe do not produce and that this has brought about a change in our relations to the unconditioned reality. It will be noticed that our colorless entered the universe is not a whit less metaphorical than the more picturesque came down from heaven. We have only substituted a picture of horizontal or unspecified movement for one of vertical movement, and every attempt to improve the ancient language will have the same result. These things not only cannot be asserted, they cannot even be presented for discussion without metaphor. We can make our speech duller, we cannot make it more literal. 2. These statements concern two things, the supernatural unconditioned reality and those events on the historical level which its eruption into the natural universe is held to have produced. The first thing is indescribable in literal speech, and therefore we rightly interpret all that is said about it metaphorically. But the second thing is in a wholly different position. Events on the historical level are the sorts of things we can talk about literally. If they occurred, they were perceived by the senses of men. Legitimate explanation degenerates into muddled or dishonest explaining away as soon as we start applying to these events the metaphorical interpretation which we rightly apply to the statements about God. The assertion that God has a son was never intended to mean that he is a being propagating his kind by sexual intercourse, and so we do not alter Christianity by rendering explicit the fact that sonship is not used of Christ in exactly the same sense in which it was used of men. But the assertion that Jesus turned water into wine was meant perfectly literally, for this refers to something which, if it happened, was well within the reach of our senses and our language. When I say, my heart is broken, you know perfectly well that I don't mean anything you could verify at a post-mortem. But when I say, my bootlace is broken, then, if your own observation shows it to be intact, I am either lying or mistaken. 
The accounts of the miracles in first century Palestine are either lies or legends or history. And if all or the most important of them are lies or legends, then the claim which Christianity has been making for the last 2,000 years is simply false. No doubt it might even so contain noble sentiments and moral truths, so does Greek mythology, so does Norse, but that is quite a different affair. Nothing in this chapter helps us to a decision about the probability or improbability of the Christian claim. We have merely removed a misunderstanding in order to secure for that question a fair hearing. Chapter 11. Christianity and Religion Those who make religion their God will not have God for their religion. Thomas Erskine of Linlathan Having eliminated the confusions which come from ignoring the relations of thought, imagination, and speech, we may now return to our question. The Christians say that God has done miracles. The modern world, even when it believes in God, and even when it has seen the defenselessness of nature, does not. It thinks God would not do that sort of thing. Have we any reason for supposing that the modern world is right? I agree that the sort of God conceived by the popular religion of our own times would almost certainly work no miracles. The question is whether that popular religion is at all likely to be true. I call it, quote, religion, advisedly. We who defend Christianity find ourselves constantly opposed not by the irreligion of our hearers, but by their real religion. Speak about beauty, truth, and goodness, or about a God who is simply the indwelling principle of these three, speak about a great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind of which we are all parts, a pool of generalized spirituality to which we can all flow, and you will command friendly interest. But the temperature drops as soon as you mention a God who has purposes and performs particular actions, who does one thing and not another, a concrete, choosing, commanding, prohibiting God with a determinate character. People become embarrassed or angry. Such a conception seems to them primitive and crude and even irreverent. The popular religion excludes miracles because it excludes the living God of Christianity and believes instead in a kind of God who obviously would not do miracles or indeed anything else. This popular religion may roughly be called pantheism, and we must now examine its credentials. In the first place, it is usually based on a quite fanciful picture of the history of religion. According to this picture, man starts by inventing spirits to explain natural phenomena, and at first he imagines these spirits to be exactly like himself. As he gets more enlightened, they become less manlike, less anthropomorphic, as the scholars call it. Their anthropomorphic attributes drop off one by one, First the human shape, then human passions, then personality, will, activity. In the end, every concrete or positive attribute whatever. There is left in the end a pure abstraction, mind as such, spirituality as such. God, instead of being a particular entity with a real character of its own, becomes simply the whole show, looked at in a particular way, or the theoretical point at which all the lines of human aspiration would meet if produced to infinity. And since on the modern view the final stage of anything is the most refined and civilized stage, this religion is held to be a more profound, more spiritual, and more enlightened belief than Christianity. Now, this imagined history of religion is not true. Pantheism certainly is, as its advocates would say, congenial to the modern mind, but the fact that a shoe slips on easily does not prove that it is a new shoe, much less that it will keep your feet dry. Pantheism is congenial to our minds not because it is the final stage of a slow process of enlightenment, but because it is almost as old as we are. It may even be the most primitive of all religions, and the orenda of a savage tribe has been interpreted by some to be an all-pervasive spirit. It is immemorial in India. The Greeks rose above it only at their peak, in the thought of Plato and Aristotle. Their successors relapsed into the great pantheistic system of the Stoics. 
Modern Europe escaped it only while she remained predominantly Christian. With Giordano Bruno and Spinoza, it returned. With Hegel, it became almost the agreed philosophy of highly educated people, while the more popular pantheism of Wordsworth, Carlyle, and Emerson conveyed the same doctrine to those on a slightly lower cultural level. So far from being the final religious refinement, pantheism is in fact the permanent natural bent of the human mind, the permanent ordinary level below which man sometimes sinks under the influence of priestcraft and superstition, but above which his own unaided efforts can never raise him for very long. Platonism and Judaism, and Christianity, which has incorporated both, have proved the only things capable of resisting it. It is the attitude into which the human mind automatically falls when left to itself. No wonder we find it congenial. If religion means simply what man says about God and not what God does about man, then pantheism almost is religion, and religion in that sense has, in the long run, only one formidable opponent, namely Christianity. Modern philosophy has rejected Hegel, and modern science started out with no bias in favor of religion, but they have both proved quite powerless to curb the human impulse towards pantheism. It is nearly as strong today as it was in ancient India or in ancient Rome. Theosophy and the worship of the life force are both forms of it. Even the German worship of a racial spirit is only pantheism truncated or whittled down to suit barbarians. Yet, by a strange irony, each new relapse into this immemorial religion is hailed as the last word in novelty and emancipation. This native bent of the mind can be paralleled in quite a different field of thought. Men believed in atoms centuries before they had any experimental evidence of their existence. It was apparently natural to do so. And the sort of atoms we naturally believe in are little hard pellets, just like the hard substances we meet in experience, but too small to see. The mind reaches this conception by an easy analogy from grains of sand or of salt. It explains a number of phenomena, and we feel at home with atoms of that sort. We can picture them. The belief would have lasted forever if later science had not been so troublesome as to find out what atoms are really like. The moment it does that, all our mental comfort, all the immediate plausibility and obviousness of the old atomic theory is destroyed. The real atoms turn out to be quite alien from our natural mode of thought. They are not even made of hard stuff or matter, as the imagination understands matter, at all. They are not simple, but have a structure. They are not all the same, and they are unpicturable. The old atomic theory is in physics what pantheism is in religion, the normal instinctive guess of the human mind, not utterly wrong, but needing correction. Christian theology and quantum physics are both, by comparison with the first guess, hard, complex, dry, and repellent. The first shock of the object's real nature, breaking in on our spontaneous dreams of what the object ought to be, always has these characteristics. You must not expect Schrodinger to be as plausible as Democritus. He knows too much. You must not expect St. Athanasius to be as plausible as Mr. Bernard Shaw. He also knows too much. The true state of the question is often misunderstood because people compare an adult knowledge of pantheism with the knowledge of Christianity which they acquired in their childhood. They thus get the impression that Christianity gives the obvious account of God, the one that is too easy to be true, while pantheism offers something sublime and mysterious. In reality, it is the other way around. The apparent profundity of pantheism thinly veils a mass of spontaneous picture thinking and owes its plausibility to that fact. Pantheists and Christians agree that God is present everywhere. Pantheists conclude that he is diffused or concealed in all things, and therefore a universal medium rather than a concrete entity, because their minds are really dominated by the picture of gas or a fluid or space itself. The Christian, on the other hand, deliberately rules out such images by saying that God is totally present at every point of space and time, and locally present in none. Again, the pantheist and Christian agree that we are all dependent on God and intimately related to him. But the Christian defines this relation in terms of maker and made, 
whereas the pantheist, at least of the popular kind, says we are parts of him or are contained in him. Once more, the picture of a vast extended something which can be divided into areas has crept in. Because of this fatal picture, pantheism concludes that God must be equally present in what we call evil and what we call good, and therefore indifferent to both, ether permeates the mud and the marble impartially. The Christian has to reply that this is far too simple. God is present in a great many different modes, not present in matter as he is present in man, not present in all man as in some, not present in any other man as in Jesus. Pantheists and Christian also agree that God is superpersonal. The Christian means by this that God has a positive structure which we could never have guessed in advance any more than a knowledge of squares would have enabled us to guess at a cube. He contains persons, three of them, while remaining one God, as a cube combines six squares while remaining one solid body. We cannot comprehend such a structure any more than the Flatlanders could comprehend a cube. But we can at least comprehend our incomprehension and see that if there is something beyond personality, it ought to be incomprehensible in that sort of way. The pantheist, on the other hand, though he may say superpersonal, really conceives God in terms of what is subpersonal, as though the Flatlanders thought a cube existed in fewer dimensions than a square. At every point, Christianity has to correct the natural expectations of the pantheist and offer something more difficult, just as Schrodinger has to correct Democritus. At every moment, he has to multiply distinctions and rule out false analogies. He has to substitute the mappings of something that has a positive, concrete, and highly articulated character for the formless generalities in which pantheism is at home. Indeed, after the discussion has been going on for some time, the pantheist is apt to change his ground, and where he before accused us of childish naivety, now to blame us for the pedantic complexity of our cold Christ's entangled trinities. And we may well sympathize with him. Christianity, faced with popular religion, is continuously troublesome. To the large, well-meant statements of religion, it finds itself forced to reply again and again, well, not quite like that, or I should hardly put it that way. This troublesomeness does not, of course, prove it to be true, but if it were true, it would be bound to have this troublesomeness. The real musician is similarly troublesome to a man who wishes to indulge in untaught musical appreciation. The real historian is similarly a nuisance when we want to romance about the old days or the ancient Greeks and Romans. The ascertained nature of any real thing is always at first a nuisance to our natural fantasies, a wretched, pedantic, logic-chopping intruder upon a conversation which was getting on famously without it. But religion also claims to base itself on experience. The experiences of the mystics, that ill-defined but popular class, are held to indicate that God is the God of religion rather than of Christianity, that he, or it, is not a concrete being but being in general, about which nothing can be truly asserted. To everything which we try to say about him, the mystics tend to reply, not thus. What all these negatives of the mystics really mean, I shall consider in a moment, but I must first point out why it seems to me impossible that they should be true in the sense popularly understood. It will be agreed that, however they came there, concrete, individual, determinate things do now exist. Things like flamingos, German generals, lovers, sandwiches, pineapples, comets, and kangaroos. These are not mere principles or generalities or theorems, but things, facts real, resistant existences. One might even say opaque existences, in the sense that each contains something which our intelligence cannot completely digest. Insofar as they illustrate general laws, it can digest them, but then they are never mere illustrations. Above and beyond that, there is in each of them the opaque brute fact of existence, the fact that it is actually there and is itself. Now this opaque fact, this concreteness, is not in the least accounted for by the laws of nature or even by the laws of thought. Every law can be reduced to the form, if A, then B. Laws give us only a universe of ifs and ands, not this universe which actually exists. 
What we know through laws and general principles is a series of connections, but in order for there to be a real universe, the connections must be given something to connect, a torrent of opaque actualities must be fed into the pattern. If God created the world, then he is precisely the source of this torrent, and it alone gives our truest principles anything to be true about. But if God is the ultimate source of all concrete individual things and events, then God himself must be concrete and individual in the highest degree. Unless the origin of all other things were itself concrete and individual, nothing else could be so, for there is no conceivable means whereby what is abstract or general could itself produce concrete reality. Bookkeeping, continued to all eternity, could never produce one farthing. Meter of itself could never produce a poem. Bookkeeping needs something else, namely real money put into the account, and meter needs something else, real words fed into it by a poet, before any income or any poem can exist. If anything is to exist at all, then the original thing must be, not a principle nor a generality, much less an ideal or a value, but an utterly concrete fact. Probably no thinking person would, in so many words, deny that God is concrete and individual, but not all thinking people, and certainly not all people who believe in, quote, religion, keep this truth steadily before their minds. We must beware, as Professor Whitehead says, of paying God ill-judged metaphysical compliments. We say that God is infinite. In the sense that this knowledge and power extend not to some things but to all, this is true. But if by using the word infinite we encourage ourselves to think of him as a formless everything about whom nothing in particular and everything in general is true, then it would be better to drop that word altogether. Let us dare to say that God is a particular thing. Once he was the only thing, but he is creative, he made other things to be. He is not those other things, he is not universal being. If he were, there would be no creatures, for a generality can make nothing. He is absolute being, or rather, the absolute being, in the sense that he alone exists in his own right. But there are things which God is not. In that sense, he has a determinate character. Thus he is righteous, not amoral. Creative, not inert. The Hebrew writings here observe an admirable balance. Once God says simply, I am, proclaiming the mystery of self-existence. But times without number he says, I am the Lord. I, the ultimate fact, have this determinate character, and not that. And men are exhorted to know the Lord, to discover and experience this particular character. The error which I am here trying to correct is one of the most sincere and respectable errors in the world. I have sympathy enough with it to feel shocked at the language I have been driven to use in stating the opposite view, which I believe to be the true one. To say that God is a particular thing does seem to obliterate the immeasurable difference not only between what he is and what all other things are, but between the very mode of his existence and theirs. I must at once restore the balance by insisting that derivative things, from atoms to archangels, hardly attain to existence at all in comparison with their creator. Their principle of existence is not in themselves. You can distinguish what they are from the fact that they are. The definition of them can be understood and a clear idea of them formed without even knowing whether they are. Existence is an opaque addition to the idea of them. But with God it is not so. If we fully understood what God is, we should see that there is no question whether he is. It would always have been impossible that he should not exist. He is the opaque center of all existences, the thing that simply and entirely is, the fountain of facthood. And yet, now that he has created, there is a sense in which we must say that he is a particular thing, and even one thing among others. To say this is not to lessen the immeasurable difference between him and them. On the contrary, it is to recognize in him a positive perfection which pantheism has obscured the perfection of being creative. He is so brimful of existence that he can give existence away, can cause things to be, and to be really other than himself, can make it untrue to say that he is everything. It is clear that there never was a time when nothing existed. 
otherwise nothing would exist now. But to exist means to be a positive something, to have, metaphorically, a certain shape or structure, to be this and not that. The thing which always existed, namely God, has therefore always had his own positive character. Throughout all eternity, certain statements about him would have been true and others false. And from the mere fact of our own existence and natures, we already know to some extent which are which. We know that he invents, acts, creates. After that, there can be no ground for assuming in advance that he does not do miracles. Why then do the mystics talk of him as they do? And why are many people prepared in advance to maintain that, whatever else God may be, he is not the concrete, living, willing, and acting God of Christian theology? I think the reason is as follows. Let us suppose a mystical limpet, a sage among limpets, who, wrapped in vision, catches a glance of what man is like. In reporting it to his disciples, who have some vision themselves, though less than he, he will have to use many negatives. He will have to tell them that man has no shell, is not attached to a rock, is not surrounded by water. And his disciples, having a little vision of their own to help them, do get some idea of man. But then there comes erudite limpets, limpets who write histories of philosophy and give lectures on comparative religion, and who have never had any vision of their own. What they got out of the prophetic limpet's words is simply and solely the negatives. From these, uncorrected by any positive insight, they build up a picture of man as a sort of amorphous jelly, he has no shell, existing nowhere in particular, he is not attached to a rock, and never taking nourishment, there is no water to drift it towards him. And having a traditional reverence for man, they conclude that to be a famished jelly in a dimensionless void is the supreme mode of existence, and reject as crude, materialistic superstition any doctrine which would attribute to man a definite shape, a structure, and organs. Our own situation is much like that of the erudite limpets. Great prophets and saints have an intuition of God which is positive and concrete in the highest degree, because, just touching the fringes of his being, they have seen that he is plenitude of life and energy and joy. Therefore, and for no other reason, they have to pronounce that he transcends those limitations which we call personality, passion, change, materiality, and the like. The positive quality in him which repels these limitations is their only ground for all the negatives. But when we come limping after and try to construct an intellectual or enlightened religion, we take over these negatives, infinite, immaterial, impassable, immutable, etc., and use them unchecked by any positive intuition. At each step we have to strip off from our idea of God some human attribute. But the only real reason for stripping off the human attribute is to make room for putting on some positive divine attribute. In St. Paul's language, the purpose of all this unclothing is not that our idea of God should reach nakedness, but that it should be reclothed. But unhappily, we have no means of doing this reclothing. When we have removed from our idea of God some puny human characteristic, we, as merely erudite or intelligent inquirers, have no resources from which to supply that blindingly real and concrete attribute of deity which ought to replace it. Thus, at each step in the process of refinement, our idea of God contains less, and the fatal pictures come in, an endless, silent sea, an empty sky beyond all stars, a dome of white radiance, and we reach at last mere zero and worship a non-entity. And the understanding left to itself can hardly help following this path. That is why the Christian statement that only he who does the will of the Father will ever know the true doctrine is philosophically accurate. Imagination may help a little, but in the moral life, and still more in the devotional life, we touch something concrete which will at once begin to correct the growing emptiness of our idea of God. One moment even of feeble contrition or blurred thankfulness will, at least in some degree, head us off from the abyss of abstraction. It is reason herself which teaches us not to rely on reason only in this matter. For reason knows that she cannot work without materials. When it becomes clear that you cannot find out by reasoning whether the cat is in the linen cupboard, it is reason herself who whispers, Go and look, this is not my job, 
it is a matter for the senses. So here, the materials for correcting our abstract conception of God cannot be supplied by reason. She will be the first to tell you to go and try experience. Oh, taste and see. For, of course, she will have already pointed out that your present position is absurd. As long as we remain erudite limpets, we are forgetting that if no one had ever seen more of God than we, we should have no reason even to believe him immaterial, immutable, impassable, and all the rest of it. Even that negative knowledge which seems to us so enlightened is only a relic left over from the positive knowledge of better men, only the pattern which that heavenly wave left on the sand when it retreated. A spirit and a vision, said Blake, are not, as the modern philosophy supposes, a cloudy vapor or a nothing. They are organized and minutely articulated beyond all that the mortal and perishing nature can produce. He is speaking only of how to draw pictures of apparitions which may well have been illusory, but his words suggest a truth on the metaphysical level also. God is basic fact or actuality, the source of all other facthood. At all costs, therefore, he must not be thought of as a featureless generality. If he exists at all, he is the most concrete thing there is, the most individual, organized and minutely articulated. He is unspeakable, not by being indefinite, by being too definite for the unavoidable vagueness of language. The words incorporeal and impersonal are misleading, because they suggest that he lacks some reality which we possess. It would be safer to call him transcorporeal, transpersonal. Body and personality, as we know them, are the real negatives. They are what is left of positive being when it is sufficiently diluted to appear in temporal or finite forms. Even our sexuality should be regarded as the transposition into a minor key of that creative joy which in him is unceasing and irresistible. Grammatically, the things we say of him are metaphorical, but in a deeper sense, it is our physical and psychic energies that are mere metaphors of the real life which is God. Divine sonship is, so to speak, the solid of which biological sonship is merely a diagrammatic representation on the flat. And here the subject of imagery, which crossed our path in the last chapter, can be seen in a new light. For it is just the recognition of God's positive and concrete reality which the religious imagery preserves. The crudest Old Testament picture of Yahweh thundering and lightning out of dense smoke, making mountains skip like rams, threatening, promising, pleading, even changing his mind, transmits that sense of living deity which evaporates in abstract thought. Even sub-Christian images, even a Hindu idol with a hundred hands, gets in something which mere, quote, religion in our own days has left out. We rightly reject it, for by itself it would encourage the most blackguardly of superstitions, the adoration of mere power. Perhaps we may rightly reject much of the Old Testament imagery, but we must be clear why we are doing so, not because the images are too strong, but because they are too weak. The ultimate spiritual reality is not vaguer, more inert, more transparent than the images, but more positive, more dynamic, more opaque. Confusion between spirit and soul, or ghost, has here done much harm. Ghosts must be pictured, if we are to picture them at all, as shadowy and tenuous, for ghosts are half-men, one element abstracted from a creature that ought to have flesh. But spirit, if pictured at all, must be pictured in the very opposite way. Neither God nor even the gods are shadowy in traditional imagination. Even the human dead, when glorified in Christ, cease to be ghosts and become saints. The difference of atmosphere, which even now surrounds the words, I saw a ghost, and the words, I saw a saint, all the pallor and insubstantiality of the one, all the gold and blue of the other, contains more wisdom than whole libraries of, quote, religion. If we must have a mental picture to symbolize spirit, we should represent it as something heavier than matter. And if we say that we are rejecting the old images in order to do more justice to the moral attributes of God, we must again be careful of what we are really meaning. When we wish to learn of the love and goodness of God by analogy, 
by imagining parallels to them in the realm of human relations, we turn, of course, to the parables of Christ. But when we try to conceive the reality as it may be in itself, we must beware lest we interpret moral attributes in terms of mere conscientiousness or abstract benevolence. The mistake is easily made because we, correctly, deny that God has passions, and with us, a love that is not passionate means a love that is something less. But the reason why God has no passions is that passions imply passivity and intermission. The passion of love is something that happens to us, as getting wet happens to a body, and God is exempt from that passion in the same way that water is exempt from getting wet. He cannot be affected with love because he is love. To imagine that love as something less torrential or less sharp than our own temporary and derivative passions is a most disastrous fantasy. Again, we may find a violence in some of the traditional imagery which tends to obscure the changelessness of God, the peace which nearly all who approach him have reported, the still small voice. And it is here, I think, that the pre-Christian imagery is least suggestive. Yet even here there is a danger lest the half-conscious picture of some huge thing at rest, a clear still ocean, a dome of white radiance, should smuggle in ideas of inertia or vacuity. The stillness in which the mystics approach him is intent and alert, at the opposite pole from sleep or reverie. They are becoming like him. Silences in the physical world occur in empty places, but the ultimate peace is silent through very density of life. Saying is swallowed up in being. There is no movement because his action, which is himself, is timeless. You might, if you wished, call it movement at an infinite speed, which is the same thing as rest, but reached by a different, perhaps a less misleading, way of approach. Men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. I do not wonder. Here lies the deepest taproot of pantheism and of the objection to traditional imagery. It was hated not at bottom because it pictured him as man, but because it pictured him as king, or even as warrior. The pantheist's God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There is no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. If he were the truth, then we could really say that all the Christian images of kingship were a historical accident of which our religion ought to be cleansed. It is with a shock that we discover them to be indispensable. You have had a shock like that before, in connection with smaller matters, when the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes besides you in the darkness. So here. The shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we have been following. It is always shocking to meet life where we have thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could, and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. So it is a sort of Rubicon. One goes across or not. But if one does, there is no manner of security against miracles. One may be in for anything.